Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 856 with Chef Gary Kim. I think looking back, the most important thing was to have to have clear terms on the roles and responsibilities when you enter into a partnership so that those things don't get lost in translation or frustration doesn't fester. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. What? You didn't know that Diageo had a bar academy? Well, they do, and you found out just in time because Diageo in December, launched new master classes. These classes include how to create the ultimate seasonal menu, how to integrate low and no ABV cocktails into your menu using seasonal spices to warm up winter menus, and how to transform your outdoor dining space during the colder months. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or your business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why wait? Visit www. DiageoBarAcademy.com. That's D I A G E O BarAcademy.com. Become a member and sign up for the newsletter today. It's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D I A G E O BarAcademy.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Nowadays, people don't want to speak face-to-face. They rather communicate via text message and keep it anonymous. Talk to the Manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is convenient to you. And I think the most valuable aspect of Talk to the Manager is that you give people an opportunity to vent before they go public and write a negative review. Sometimes people just want to be heard and Talk to the Manager gives them that opportunity to be heard. Plus, you don't have to worry about your information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the phone number that Talk to the Manager provides. Also, with Talk to the Manager, it's like having a secret shopper. People will tell you any issues they come across at your restaurants, whether you want to hear them or not, but they'll be brought to your attention and that will help you improve your business. Show your guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder that this podcast needs your support. And one of the best ways you can support this podcast is by using our links. Anytime you hear guests recommend a tool or service on the show, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash whatever episode number that is and use the links in the show notes. And even better, email me, Eric, E-R-I-C, at restaurantunstoppable.com. Let me know that uh, you use my link so I can follow up and maybe 
maybe even get you a, a great deal. This is at no extra cost to you, by the way. I could actually save you money if you use my links. So today we're talking to Chef Gary Kim. And Chef Gary Kim was called out by Chef Will Mishka, the executive chef over at Ornell's. And I, actually, I think we talk a little bit about Ornell's and, and the role Ornell's played in helping uh, get Chef K- Gary Kim going uh, with his latest restaurant, Mr. Kim's. Uh, but a little bit more about Chef Gary Kim. He grew or he was born, I should say, in Seoul, Korea. He moved to the United States uh, when he was five years old, adopted by an American family. And his mother was actually a Korean which was interesting because he was able to hang on to a lot of his Korean roots, having that Korean uh, heritage and culture in the household. So uh, from there, they ended up moving up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, he didn't get into the restaurant industry, like committed fully into the industry until later in life. And it was probably, I think you would agree with me when I said this, he didn't really go all in until he was working at Black Birch. And it was at Black Birch where they really uh, encouraged him and uh, motivated him to go on and do his own thing. He started doing uh, farmer's markets and making uh, kimchi and other pickled things uh, that eventually evolved into Anju Noodle Bar in Kittery, Maine, which was right around the corner from uh, the Black Birch where he was kind of getting motivated and mentored. Uh, he only lasted a couple years at Anju before uh, splitting ways with his partner, and he went ended up traveling all over the country, mostly in California, uh, doing pop-ups and uh, kind of just networking, meeting people, getting perspective. He spent some time in Asia and Europe before coming back to the United States and partnering with the J group to open Mr. Kim's and a uh, really great conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed my time with him and it was, this is actually kind of a special episode for me because I remember first seeing Gary Kim at black birch back in 2013 when I was going in there to get chef Jake on the show. I remember seeing Ga- chef Gary Kim and uh, who knows or who knew that I would end up speaking to him after all that he's done since me starting this podcast and since him starting his career, it was a really great conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. Here it is. All right. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Gary Kim, formerly of Anju Noodle Bar and Mr. Kim's. Gary, are you feeling unstoppable? Today? I sure am, Eric. I sure am. Thanks Did for I, having me. I thank you for being here. I can't wait to dive into your story. You've been on my radar now since you opened Anju way back in 2014. I kind of always knew that it was going to happen. Uh, you know, and here we are, uh, what, eight years ago? Eight years later, nine years later, and uh, we have Will Mishka calling you out. Thank you, Will, from Ornell's. Thanks, uh, that Will. was an awesome episode if you guys did not catch it. But I can't wait to dive into your story, man, to find out who you are and how you got here. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? I'm just going to have to put it out there. Uh, positive, vi- positive vibes only, which was our mantra from uh, Mr. Kim's when we opened, because it's such a wild ride working in the industry, and you know you find a lot of... Um, different personalities and like, you know, um, just to try to keep things light and fun in the kitchen where things can get a little serious. Yeah. And even though, you know, we're all working collectively to um, I don't operate at such a high standards, like we kind of forget that, you know, to be light and to not take things so seriously because at the end of the day, it's just food. And it's an option. I think it's important that people realize that we as humans are one of the few or if only mammal that is maybe with the, like, the exception of like a dolphin or something that can choose whether to be angry or happy like and that's a very unique human thing so you can choose to be positive but that is also easier said than done so my follow-up question is how do you keep that top of mind how do you keep this idea of choose positivity because it's not hard to lose your shit in the kitchen it's not hard to lose your shit at a customer how do you keep that 
and that mentality of stay positive top of mind? That's just through your own personal self-care and self-work. you got to be mindful of it and just being mindful every day, at every moment, and not being reactive because it's so easy to lose your shit. Yeah. But, you know, we're all human. We all make mistakes, but that trickles down and to the team around you. And since it's just a team-oriented experience, you know. Yep. So, so this is what I know about you and the little research I did. I know you're from originally Korea, correct? Born in Seoul. B- born in Seoul. You came to the States when you were five years old, Virginia. Yep. So born in Seoul, adopted, and um, Korean mother and uh, American dad. Okay. Uh, which was unique because I don't know any other adoptees that have had a uh, member of uh, parent be from the uh, original country. Yeah. Um, so it was unique. So a lot of... Um, very confused and conflicted growing <laughs> up. Identity crisis, if you will, for sure. I can imagine. Um, but, you know, I uh, moved to Virginia when I was five and became naturalized. And um, most of elementary and then made a move up to Connecticut for middle school. And ultimately moved to New Hampshire in 96 and did eighth grade in high school. Okay. So at what point did you know that this was like the food and beverage industry was your path? This is what you want to do? You know, starting from my first job cooking fried dough at water country which was absolutely terrible fucking hated it i think everybody who grew up in the yeah it was like got a job at water country it was close by to the house and you know in hindsight i probably should have been one of the ride attendants but <laughs> you know working when it's like summertime and flipping fried dough is not ideal i used to be so jealous of everybody that worked at water country because there was like this water country like click of like like kids from all over the seacoast like coming together over the summer and I just remember hearing like the good, the good times, but I think yeah. that's, uh, we don't need to get sidetracked with that <laughs> conversation. Keep going. Um, and then my first restaurant job, actual restaurant job, was working um, as a prep cook at PD Seafood okay. on Rye Beach. Um, so that's kind of where I learned basic systems and just hot, uh, volume and classic New England. Um, guys were super big uh, pro Jamaica and, you know, um, reggae vibes, island vibes. Um, so it was fun in that way. Um, and, uh, started there, worked there for two summers. And then when I moved to Boston, when I was doing school for a little bit, uh, I worked for a place on the South end. Um, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Uh, they own several other restaurants in the Boston area. Um, and that was my actual first real cooking gig. So at this point you're what? 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, 22, 23. Okay. PD's and Water Country was when 16 and like 18 and 19. Okay. What's the year at this point? The year working in Boston is 2003. Okay. 2003, 2004. Got it. Um, so at this point in your career, are you thinking to yourself, this is what you want to do? This is what you love? This no. Is your path? I was just trying to stick, uh, just play around with anything and everything that I could get uh, my foot in the door. Um, and just try it out and give it like, you know, six months, three to six months. I was kind of all over the place between that and some, a couple of nine to five jobs through temp agencies. Um, and that restaurant in the South end that I worked at, um, I, I, it wasn't until 2012, 2011, 2012, when I took that job with the black birch, okay. um, is where kind of things started to come together. And I was like, I could, I really do. I'm passionate about this. And I'd like to make a career out of this. And so there's like a ten like year window yeah. from like your early adulthood to when you made you decided to, to to make a go at becoming a chef or a mm-hmm. restaurateur. What was the thought? What was the the plan at this point? 
the thought was, especially having been cultivated by working with Sky and Jake at the Black Birch during those years, was where um, you know they both believed in me. They taught me a lot. I have no formal culinary training. Not that I think that that really matters. Obviously, it helps, but just for a love for eating and cooking and just entertaining friends and you know being creative. So, so was there an experience, like a moment, where you're like, okay, like this moment after having this experience, I'm I'm set down this path. There was a moment between that, but then I started dragging my feet, and then uh, Ben and everyone at the Birch was just kind of giving me that friendly push to be like, hey, you have this idea. You got to run with it because I didn't want to have that fester. What I feel like it was, was they were like, you keep talking about it. Now just go do it. Yeah. And, you know. And that's the hardest part is is. just starting. But I'm very grateful for that because they saw something in me to be able to pursue this and do this in a way that was for the right reasons. And it was just simply for the love of it. So I am super curious what was going on during that, that 10 year, like, I don't know hiatus away from the were you working in restaurants i was in and out of restaurants trying to do a couple uh, nine to five corporate jobs um just what'd you go to school for initially uh it was for computer science okay um and then i switched over to like business management with economics okay like, just i don't know it was, maybe it was my add or my adderall prescription went out i don't know who knows <laughs> i just like it wasn't nothing was clicking you know yeah so do you think that that I mean, I think it's interesting to see how many different types of backgrounds get into the restaurant industry. There's definitely a correlation with people who are like engineers that do really well in this background. I've seen that. I was curious if there was anything that might have helped support or lead you in this direction prior to actually like going gung ho. So back to the, um, it seems like the, the pivotal point for you, which is kind of what I, re- I identified was that black birch where you're, you, you were in this industry. Like this is like, you're on a path and, mentorship is huge get more into that relationship with ben and gavin and jake smith who was actually one of my very first interviews i think he was like episode like five or Mm -hmm. six so if you guys want a little teaser go check that out warning you it was episode five or six i've come a long way but um (laughs) they were great but get into that like what was it like being at black birch honestly it was unlike any other restaurant experience i've had before working in the city and like working as far back as pd's and water country days but just like a f- place where everyone cared and it was just an environment that was fast paced and they were putting something brand new together. But at that time, Kittery was on the rise of becoming a destination and they were a large pioneer in that, um, I feel. And just it was just a very big sense of camaraderie. Everyone was friends while hanging out at the end of service. And it was one of the places outside of like working in the city where like the moment we opened the doors until the diamond closed just packed and i wasn't used to that because be like 3 30 be rolling around and you're like why is there like 60 people here already it was a very special thing very special time um, i I remember like getting a seat at the black perch for like i mean i haven't been back there in a while but when i was trying i remember it was hard yeah you'd get a drink and people waiting up to two hours and I, I know you kind of alluded, you did an interview not too long ago with the, the ladies over at the Lens Food. Is it Lens Food? Is that the or Lens? The Food Lens. The Food Lens. Um, and I listened to that interview to, to prepare for today. There's a story behind what kind of set up Kittery's food scene. Do you want to get into that? Do you know the story? Uh, I mean, just, I don't know the story, but um, in retrospect, to just be like, I was happy to be a part of that. Yeah. Um, it started with the Black Birch. And then when that Masonic temple um, got renovated and was opened up for commercial space, um, with Lil's, the bakery, Main Meat, Anju, um, and Folk, 
and aside from like Annika Jans also being a part of that community as well. But just through a natural progression and just kind of being in it and like looking back now and just seeing where Kittery Foresight is today, um, just for whatever reason, people were just migrating and flocking to the Kittery scene. And Black Birch, I feel, was a big part of that. And yeah, but I, I think from the, the the interesting the interesting thing I picked up from the, the story that you did with those other the, the ladies was that uh, the the bridge was closed, so there was a period, and it's amazing this like human behavior, like one little thing like a bridge closing. So now like people would go over into Port. So Kittery is just north of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, like literally over the bridge. It's uh, the the river separates uh, Maine and New Hampshire, and Kittery is the first state you, or the first town you hit when you get into uh, Maine. In uh, that bridge, like people would come over, they would live in Kittery, I think, because it was cheaper. It was kind of like out of the way, right? And they'd come get their kicks in Portsmouth. But then that bridge closed, and people didn't want to cross. It was all of a sudden way harder to get into Portsmouth, like an extra ten minutes because you'd have to go like up and around. And it seemed like the, the, the timing of that bridge closing in Black Birch opening. And I don't know how much truth there is to this, but do you know anything about that? I think just from being involved at that time and seeing that that. I believe that when Black Birch opened, no one had a real reason to go to Portsmouth anymore. Yeah. You had great beer. You had great cocktails. You had the records playing for your soundtrack at dinner. And just the character and the f- warmth from the people that worked there um, and just made into just this great community. Yeah. That spread um, out even beyond Kittery. Yeah, and there's something to be said about opening something right on the edge. And that's definitely a pattern I've seen. What I mean by that is um, if you can find an, an area that's on the edge of an area that's really like burgeoning and big and, and happening, those those outskirts, like just on the edge, seems to always do really well. I mean, Kittery isn't a big city. I wouldn't call it a big city. Um, there's not much of a night scene there until this little section started, right, where you had... Uh, the, the Martin Gale Wharf, right? Am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. You, like you said, Anju, the Black Birch. Like, I, what was it before then? Do you know? Do you remember? Do you recall? In the Kittery Forest side, it was Tulsi, um, where the space where Bowie and Black Birch is yep. was originally um, the first Tulsi location, yep. which they had moved. Um, but and then there was some random breakfast place where Rudders is. Annika Jans was like the first like restaurant, restaurant, and then like Local Cocos, which is huge now. Um, with their expansion was a tiny little like kind of food stand almost um, and then they had like Golden Harvest and Carl's but in the forest side you really had nothing outside yeah. of Tulsi and Annika Jans so when what, what was the year when you joined them was it 2013 2012 was that when you joined uh, the Black Birch ben, uh, Gavin, it's and gotta Jake. be fall of 2011 it was during the end of their first year I believe and what was your experience like where were you where, where would you rate yourself as a cook at this point like what were you, you were working in restaurants so you had some jobs yeah, but I um, this is where I like really honed it in and dialed in like saw like really took notice to technique and like taking your time and being paying attention to the process and like no shortcuts and that even though that almost everyone is doing the same thing how can you do it where it's consistent and just done in a way where you know it's the best it's the best possible way. So what was different about Black Birch? I mean, you worked in a handful of restaurants before this. I mean, it's the timing of it, I think, was a big part. And also being a part and watching the growth of Kittery, from what I remember from being in that area, going through high school. Like, it wasn't really a sought-after place or place that you thought to go and hang out. And now it was becoming this thing. And no one really knew. But you could you could see that it was. And just the progression of something that was just really 
different from Portsmouth, and I think kind of definitely in a, definitely filled a, a void that needed to be filled as far as like the dining landscape and just a place that you can have fun and just really kind of like almost like a Cheers vibe. You know, people know you; it's very personable, and you know, it's it's fun. And you can get that from the people that are there and then the people that are just hanging out for hours. So as, as far as what it was like working in the restaurant, the culture of the restaurant, the way that people conducted themselves in the kitchen, was it different from your previous experiences? Yeah, was there a level up? Was there? It was serious, but in a way where like, you know, you could do your thing, even though I felt inexperienced a lot and kind of imposter syndrome in a lot of ways. I still have that. Oh, yeah. Um, but just being there when I was, was just a very special time for me. And there's no real way for me to describe it because it's my own personal experience, but just knowing that it was a good fit and that that led to the next thing. Yeah. And there's three owners, which is something you don't see very often. Three uh, operating partners Mm -hmm. back when they opened in 2011, it was Gavin, it was Jake, and it was Ben, correct? Correct Correct me if I'm wrong. I know you, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know the story better than I do. Of those three individuals, um, observing them, right? What was it like watching them balance that 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 three way leadership role? I think that everyone had their designated role and excelled at what they did to contribute to taking the workload and delegating all the responsibilities. Um, but done in a way where the biggest thing there that I take away was taking care of the people that take care of you. Mm-hmm. So people who have been there even still to this day. Um, and just creating this family environment, which at the end of the day, all restaurants or places create that level of <clears throat> um, family or like, you know, you're all in it to um, same vision, same mission, same, same, vision, alignment. same mission. Yeah. Everything is aligned. Yeah. So what was it? Give me an example. You said taking care of the people who take care of you. Give me an example of a time they took care of somebody who took care of them. Well, I. I can only share it from my own personal experience, and that is <clears throat> me showing up late to two important beer events and not getting fired, where, you know, they gave me two chances instead of just one chance and stays out of here um, for just, you know, not being in it in a way where I was still kind of fucking off a little bit, but they still saw something in me and gave me a chance to keep my job because I didn't want to because I didn't know what I was going to do. Like, I was so invested in being in Kittery Portsmouth at that time and I wanted to be a part of this. And since then, just helping um, build me up and my confidence in working in the kitchen. And then also just from restaurant events, you know, hanging out at the end of the night and just feeling like a sense of like I belong somewhere. And that it was just so great. I mean, especially for me. Like, you know, I'm very close with my family or anything. So my work environment, where I work, or the people I surround myself with consistently like, become my family. And so that was very important for me. I needed that. Yeah, that's like, for me, you're, you're kind of hitting a vein with me. Because that's what draws me to this industry. I, I love this industry because of the people that work in this industry. I love the people in this industry. They're the most fun, outgoing, real emotional, social intelligence, uh, like to have a good time and they become your family. That's one of the reasons why I get a little iffy when people say, Oh, like there's a, a, a line between work and, and life because in this industry, your work so so often is your life. The people you go in the trenches with are the same people you hang out with outside of work because they're the only one that has the same schedule as you, you yeah, know, like the people that you see more than you see 
anyone. Yeah, right? And I don't know how I feel about like completely having a line between work and life because in this industry, I love that, that there's a bleed over. You know? What are your thoughts on that? I would agree because yeah. that's what makes it interesting. Right? I mean, how often do you find that in most jobs? I always find that in the hospitality industry, that's where it's, where it's most prevalent or it seems to me. <clears throat> that sense of camaraderie and like going out and they become your family and friends and like your closest confidants and like mentors. And that's what I really appreciate being there. Um, yeah. That really kind of helps set it up to take on some mad foods and try the kimchi thing and prior to opening up on you. But they were really uh, played a pivotal part. And that's what I was hoping we would get to when I asked, like, show me, give me an example of what taking care of your people who take care of you looks like. I think that you see that most common in this industry when, when you know you have somebody who's working for you and they have talent, they have passion, they're going to go on and do their own thing. You help them do that. You, you have to, I think there's a certain level of accepting that people are going to go on. There's life beyond my giving you a job, right? You would hope that the people that you have come attract and work with you want to go on and do their own thing or, or grow into something, right? And I think that what this idea of taking care of the people who help you, like if somebody gives you three years, four years of their, their life and they show up and they're dependable and they help you, what can you do to help them get to the next step? And I think that's where I see this in your story. Is that safe to say? For sure. That's where they acted as incubator for when we were um, producing kimchi, um, working with a, a few of the local farms and bringing that to the farmer's markets. Um, they acted as a place of remit, uh, commissary space because I didn't have my own yeah. um, to make the kimchi and storage and use that to hit up all the farmers markets. Yeah. I want to dive deeper into this because I think there's Let's tons go. of lessons, but I want to dial it back a little bit sure. because I wanted to see if I can't get more out of really painting that picture of when you first land at, at Black Birch. Um, this is like when you're, it seems like this is like the pivotal point in your career where you're like, where you're committed to this, this, this industry, this path. Um, who was your key mentor of those three owners? Who was the one person that really kind of took you under their wing or was it all three of them? All three in their own way, but the most important would be Jake and uh, Sky. Okay. Those are the two people that I worked with and interacted with daily. Jake and Sky. So I know uh, Jake was the executive chef. Is Sky the sous chef? Yep. Okay. So w- what was that like? Explain that, that experience. What did they teach you that you had to like? They like, taught me a sense of urgency and efficiency of motion. Okay. So just being organized and to just be able to manage your, how to manage your time and how to be able to do things well within a short amount of time and do this every day. Okay. Um, anything else about like maybe professionalism or character or things like along that line? They definitely helped to get me out of my shell because I would definitely go into a dark place mentally on the line because it was so busy all the time. So Jake, having his sense of humor, and that guy's a very seasoned, he's a veteran. He's a chef's chef is what I always used to call him. And then him and Sky just had this awesome dynamic and uh, were able to work off each other when it came to the menu and food and just service and have fun, but still like get crushed, but still have just a very positive like mindset throughout all of it. So reflecting back during that time, what was that dialogue like when they saw you going into your dark place? Like what was the conversation? I I think it was as simple as just being like Gary, like what's what's going on with you? Just like, just, you know, checking in and just like talking to me because I'm just in my own head just being like, what is going on right now? How do I get through this? Am I doing a good enough job? But how did they do this in a way that didn't exaggerate the emotion? Because you see this happen sometimes where somebody's clearly in the weeds and you want to help, but by even saying something to them, you just 
upset them even more because now they are self-conscious that they might not be able to hang or whatever. Like, how do they do it in a way that didn't make you go further into the weeds? I think it ultimately just comes down on the person when it comes to that. But just being able to have a thick skin and look beyond that, you're not trying to take anything personal because at the end of the day, it's not meant to be personal. Yeah. Unless someone's being a real dick. I mean, that's pretty apparent. But this was done in a way it's like, hey, it's okay. Like, Breathe. Yeah, just take a breath. We'll get through it and keep, make it fun. Like, yeah. keep having, if, if you're not having fun, you're not smiling, then you probably shouldn't be doing whatever it is that you're doing. How do they keep it fun? Um, well, I mean, you got to just spend some time with Jake. And I think from talking with him, like, he's just a very smart and intelligent guy, family guy. You know, he's got like five kids now since I've known him. Just no matter what, I mean, life is going to dish out whatever it's going to dish out. You don't know what's going to happen. There's so much uncertainty. And also, we have all our own personal, individual struggles or, you know, whatever that may be. But at the end of the day, you got to lighten it up. Yeah. Um, so what I'm curious about, um, we, we I kind of alluded to my interest this earlier. Three partners, one restaurant, small restaurant, what, maybe f- 30 seats? I think a little bit bigger than that. Maybe 50 40, seats? Yeah, something like max. that. Max. Yeah. So not a big space. Um, and I... And I I'm an advocate for this model, and I think you're going to see more uh, owner-operator situations where you have some type of collaboration where somebody's front of house, somebody's back of house, and you divide and conquer, right? And, uh, and over time, like you're not making a lot of money at first because you're splitting that profit three ways, but over time, you can attract. But, but when you have three people to divide and conquer, you can be the best at those things, and collectively, you're just far better. And that creates opportunity for you. And I think where we're sitting today is an example of that because Black Birch went on to open Chapel Maine up here in Dover. What else do they have going on right now? That's it. That's it. <clears throat> just, but just, you, in, in doing one thing really well, you always create opportunity for others. So it's like an upfront hit. You're not going to be as profitable. But in doing the, that thing well, like you're going to create opportunity. Yeah, that's yourself. the difference between the short game and the long game, yeah. right? Um, and, I, and I hope more people, I hope that, I think this is a solution to a more equitable industry where we're kind of sharing in the profit. And I think I want to see more like that. But where I'm going with this is what did you learn about that dynamic? Being a fly on the wall, observing three owners and how they communicated, how they divided things up. What did you learn about partnerships during this time? That at the end of the day, partnerships are never going to be easy. Yeah. Um, no matter if you have history with this person or someone you're just getting to know on a professional level, that you really need to know that it's like any other relationship, partnership, friendship. Marriage. Like there's going to be give and take and compromise, and you have to leave your egos aside because at the end of the day, it's not personal. It's business. Yeah. And, you know, we're all in it to pay the rent and take care of our families and ourselves. But um, once you start letting your emotion and taking it personal that's when things get tricky and yeah can be a point of no return in some ways yeah uh i think now's a great time to take our take our first break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to dive into how anju your first restaurant came to be this episode is brought to you by diageo bar academy what you didn't know that diageo had a bar academy well they do and you found out just in time because in december diageo bar academy launched new master classes and these classes include how to create an ultimate seasonal menu how to integrate low and no abv cocktails into your menu using seasonal spices to warm up winter menus and how to transform your outdoor dining space during the colder winter months 
Diageo Bar Academy makes it super easy to consume their content too. You can register for upcoming events or watch these can't miss masterclasses on demand at anytime by visiting www.diageobaracademy.com. Whether you are a bartender, bar back, or manager, or even if you're completely new to the industry, Diageo Bar Academy has easy-to-access resources to help you learn new skills or stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. Diageo Bar Academy is a free online resource for hospitality professionals, offering resources for bartenders, bar managers, and venue owners. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why wait? Visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and sign up for the newsletter today. It's completely free and you'll be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. All right, we're back, and uh, you kind of just you set it up nicely for us that uh, you got your first, like, not your first job, but you, this is the first ex- moment in time where you knew this is the path you wanted to be on, which was at Black Birch. And then Ben, I think it was specifically Ben, encouraged you, correct me if I'm wrong, to just start, right? Yeah, they were like, you, you told us, you shared this thing with us, and we can see that you want to do it. Well, take us to the point where you shared it. Like, how did you pitch it to them? Were you just looking for advice, guidance? No, well... The idea was that when I first moved into Hampshire, I noticed that there was a real void in um, ethnic, ethnic food, food in general, yeah. outside of your typical sushi. And there still is. There's still a ton of opportunity yeah, up there. Yeah, for sure. And But when I moved here, I was like, man, it would be cool to be able to have a place that tastes like the food that my mom makes or that I've grown up eating. Um, and like, why can't that be? Yeah. Was your mom first generation, second generation? First generation, yeah. She Got was born it. in Korea, um, lost her parents, both the parents in the Korean War. Uh, raised by her grandmother, um, and moved here with my dad, and had two kids. So you're really fortunate them. to have that that connection to your culture that not many adopted kids get. Absolutely. While it was very tough growing up and having to grapple with the idea of being adopted and all of the things that go along with that, um, I'm smarter now. I know more now than I knew then. Yeah. But um, to like understand and appreciate my story and their story and how they were just at the end of the day just trying to provide a life and just have a family. Yeah. So you had this early tie to your origins for sure, and you take it from there. I think that's what you were saying uh, with what was directing you, steering you with Anju. So as far as Anju, it's like man, it's New England, and you know, going out having some drinks at the bars, hangover cure. What's better than ramen? It's better than noodles and broth, you know, and had a pork bun. So just after being a fan of David Chang and Momofuku, um, which was a big part, I think, for a lot of people, especially during that time, um, was to try and just hit the sweet note of providing a noodle bar to the area. And after gauging interest as far as Asian food in general and curiosity um, by selling kimchi and hot sauce at the farmer's markets, um, the timing, too. Just all about timing. Everything was just organic. Yeah. Um, when did uh, Momofuku open? Was that 2011, 2012? No, I think Momofuku Noodle Bar, the first venture, opened in 2004. Oh, way or Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, um, in New York City. New York City. Um, but nothing like that was up here. I think so. One of the key lessons here is unique selling proposition. Do something that nobody else is doing. Which right? 
at that time no one was yeah. and after talking with some other chefs and people I know at that time that they were had, had been considering it but no time we were able to get it on that yeah. and open it in Kittery and the big subtle lessons that have come out in your story just up to this point is one just start I think whoever it was whether it was Ben Jake or Gavin who was telling you to just start is you, you literally just gotta if you want to do it you just gotta start and the way you start is where you can and that's the, the other big takeaway is what I love about your story is you started with farmers markets you started with doing one thing two things really well and, and putting your energy into that one thing for you that was kimchi uh, why, why that approach why was that the the reason or the area you decided to start ultimately you knew you wanted to do noodles uh noodles kind of came second okay. <clears throat> it's just a matter of gauging interest and also just furthering my connection with the people in the area and putting a face to the name yes why is that so important because you know anyone can start selling or doing anything but people like to have a face to associate or a person to associate mm-hmm. with whatever service or product they're buying from on a personal level and i mean you got to market yourself i mean no one else is going to do it for you unless yeah. you have the money to put towards that but so you just got to get out there guerrilla marketing yeah and at the end of the day business is all about relationships Absolutely. i think people think when they when they this they have this idea to open a restaurant they think it starts when the brick and mortar when you when you get the brick and mortar no it does not it starts way before that yeah when with your relationships and the, so what were the so you were focusing on, on developing consumer relationships you also were in with the, the 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 black birch dudes who in their own regard were well respected they're i'm sure they're opening doors for you correct me if i'm absolutely. wrong absolutely from working there and being affiliated with the community of kittery and the growth during that time and to kind of get connected with all like the movers and shakers like the all the breweries up in portland and places in boston and like even spreading out further than that and you need roots. You have to exactly. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, I mean that's the foundation. Without the roots, all it takes is a good gust, and you're done, right? But if you have that foundation, those roots, it's gonna take a lot more to to to, to shake you um, if you're playing the long game. Um, so you were in Black Birch. Correct me if I'm wrong. That that was the kitchen that you were using to to do your. Was it wolves and sheep? Was your <clears throat> no, so uh, Sun, yeah, Sunmat Foods was the uh, first venture that was the kimchi fermented foods, kimchi and hot sauce, um, and I was working uh, full time at the Birch while doing this thing on the side on Sundays. I think for the Kittery Farmers Market that was starting up, um, and then doing out to Wentworth, and then having a couple, getting the product on a few retail shelves, um, but. They were acting as an incubator as my commissary space to make all that stuff because it's a pretty spacious um, uh, kitchen. And so I was able to make that kimchi there and hold it and then move it all out when we went to the farmer's market to sell. So, correct, let's just say it one more time. Wh- where, which kitchen were you using to? Black Birch. Black Birch, that's what I thought. So I started at Black Birch with the kimchi, selling at farmer's markets. We had a, an account, I think we were on a couple of Whole Food shelves. Um, but then we got into making um, Anju happen. Yeah. And so were they? Was the, the was there ever the dialogue where they were going to help you do this? They were going to help you open it and invest in you or become a partner? Was that ever a part of the dialogue? Um, not initially. No. Okay. It's just kind of where they did uh, help contribute to our opening of Anju, um, but the kimchi thing was just something that Julian and I were doing on our own. And Julian um, didn't work at Black Birch, or he did? He did not. He, did he and not. I had met at Annika Jan's. Okay. He was a bartender 
at there and Black Trumpet, but he also was in wine sales. Okay. So, um, what what's the dialogue between you and Julian at this point? What's 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 the story? Like? You know, I mean, circling back to your question about just partnerships and um, business, just you know, we didn't really know each other going into it, and that's okay. Uh, How long had, did you know each other before actually oh, starting? Man, to, I mean, it was less than a year. Here. Yeah, yeah, not that long. Yeah, but long enough to kind of like be like, okay, I'm about to start this thing, and do you want to? You knew uh, you needed help. Yeah. Um, and plus he was like in distribution, he was wine sales. So yeah. complimented of, you. Exactly. So, um, we decided to try this out and then just everything started to just pick up very quickly. Like we had the restaurant opening, there was a cocktail, a cocktail bar. Um, just everything started to happen really fast. And the dialogue between him and I, um, there was points where, you know, it, it got really challenging, but you know, at the end of the day, I have nothing against him. It, uh, was a total business venture. He's a great person. I wish him well. Um, and with all the success that he's had, um, after I decided to uh, part ways, but you know, I intend to pull back layers on that because yeah. I, I think there are some lessons we can learn. But I think that there are even more lessons to be learned right now on this idea. Because right now, if you're listening to this show and you want to open your own place, what I would tell anybody to do is exactly what you did: start small build roots, develop relationships, network, uh, get the help you need from your community. For you, that was Black Birch. You had, I mean, you, what was your overhead to start doing? The other variable with kimchi, what's your overhead with that? You're buying cabbage, you know? Like, I mean, the biggest thing was like, you know, <laughs> labor or production time. It was just time. Exactly. But that's, I think, a given yeah. um, everywhere. Like, you, that's going to be your bi- your biggest expense, right? The, the labor, the production time. But like, this is how you start. You start small. You start with a vision. You start with relationships, and you build slowly over time. How long were you doing the farmer's market? Uh, we did that for about 10 months, maybe, yeah. like about a year. Were you doing pop-ups? To, were, you, were you kind of hyping up no. the opening up or anything like that? Uh, we had done one pop-up uh, in Boston, um, and then you know, after Anju had opened, we had done a collaboration with um, a chef up at the uh, Honey Paw okay. up in Portland. Yep. I love those guys. Um, so when did this space come, become available? Did the, was the concept then space or space then you're like, I could do something with that space? The space came available like during the end of or was, yeah, 2013, I believe. And that's when we had the dialogue going with Michael Langarden. Um, and then we opened Anju in May of 2014. Who's Michael Langarden? Michael Langarden is a former restaurateur, um, owner of, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Bob's Clam Hut and okay. Roberts. Okay. But he was part of, um, him and his partners had purchased and renovated the Masonic Temple in the Kittery Forest side. Okay. Which Wanju and like Main Main and all those uh, businesses live in. Got it, got it, got it. Um, so what was that dialogue? So did he approach you? Did you approach him? He just gave me a phone call and I was like, hey, Gary, I heard um, that you're thinking about opening a place. I have this place right next door. Um, come check it out. And we checked it out. I mean, it was a blank canvas. But just something about it just screamed that it could be a noodle bar um, with the windows and just, you know, like I said, the timing of everything and just how everything was happening so organically. It's like, let's do this. It's not a big space. What is it, like 500 square feet, 800 square feet? If that. Yeah. If that. Yeah. Maybe even smaller, but yeah. But that's another example of start where you can start small. Exactly. You know, like what was your, what were the terms of your lease? Was it long, short? The 10-year lease, yeah. Okay. 
Um, but the other variable there, you have businesses on other side, on either side of you. So the other benefit to that too is like, you know, you want your neighbors to do well, but in the event that they don't do well, now you have a relationship with that landlord. And if you need to scale, if you need to grow, you can always blow a wall out or move to a space Definitely. adjacent or whatever. Uh, that natural growth is huge. Um, what was the space like when you first moved into it? Was it, did you have to do a lot of re- renovation? Did you need to uh, We had to loans? install like a, make a kitchen work with seating um, and try to maximize that. So we didn't have the initial um, capital to really invest into a full, uh, full on, yeah. full on uh, kitchen setup. Um, but was able to be um, forward thinking and just try to do a lot with a little, you know? Um, so just have like a, what, a six foot residential hood, not meant for commercial use and have that be along with electric, all electric induction cooktops. And uh, however, just made it happen, you know? So how did you get, how did you pull that off with permitting? uh, Well, luckily with Kittery, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. So we were just able to, Kittery was uh, conducive for small businesses to open up during that time. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. We weren't doing anything legal or anything. Just, you know, they were just allowing us to make do with what we had available and just have that work and be able to operate. Which is another real benefit to opening up on the outskirts. Like I mentioned earlier, like if you're trying to go into the, like the heart of a big town, like a a well, like an established city, there's going to be hoops you have to jump through. You have to to wait for licensing, permitting. Uh, It it can be a a nightmare, honestly. Um, So another benefit of, again, going outside of the heart, being on the edge. I think there's something to be said there. Um, I think the other thing too, like I think the, the vertical you picked, you focus on doing one thing really well, noodles, right? And what, what kind of overhead do you need to invest in to do that well compared to other verticals? You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a low barrier to entry. For that, yeah. I mean, the biggest thing just comes down to staffing. And overhead was just as with any restaurant. It just comes down to staffing. Um, we were able to just assemble a team and operate the way that we were with so few people and be able to build that. Yeah. Do you remember what your initial startup cost was? Um, initially, I think we opened Anju collectively all together with everything uh, for a little under 100 grand. Wow. <laughs> like I said, we made a lot. We had this much money to put towards it. We had this much time. And luckily, we had been able to collectively pool in our resources and make it happen. Yeah. I think that's another big thing about starting small is like your expenses don't get out of control. You yeah, know, you, you never get ahead to, of your skis. You have to be realistic. Yeah. But, you know. So how long was Anju open or how long were you involved with Anju before parting ways? So collectively with Sun, the start of Sunmat, which was a fermented food um, company uh, in Anju, uh, three years collectively, I parted ways in... Uh, May 2016. Mm-hmm. So up to this point, knowing what you know now, after opening Mr. Kim's, after uh, traveling around the world, uh, talking to other restaurateurs, continuing to learn, knowing what you know now, looking back at that time, uh, the first three years, uh, would you have done anything different? No, because to answer that is that uh, you have to go through your mistakes in order to learn. What were your mistakes? And the mistakes were just, you know, kind of feeling in over my head a lot of times um just to being like hey i have this idea but now holy shit this idea has come to fruition 
and it's gaining so much success. Like all the things that you could possibly want in your first year in opening a restaurant were happening with the um, the recognition and the, public- the publicity and the support from the community and just being a part of a area that was just on the cusp of becoming a destination place and to be a part of that. Um, Mistakes-wise was just, I think, more so just the most important thing, looking back, is just to remember to make time for you and, like, self-care and to remember that your life is not just this one thing. You need to have something to counterbalance that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people do get in trouble in this industry because their their business becomes such a part of their identity. Like sometimes their name is literally on the door, you know, like like in the title. Uh, Mr. Kim's is a perfect example, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think it's it's there's something to be said about creating some kind of divide between the business and myself. Uh, you want it to be an extension of who you are, you know. You want to be able to show up to it. You want it to be a part of. You want your identity to be on it. But at the same time, it, like we take it so personally, if um it's like a baby, like it becomes hard to walk away from, you it know, was. like if, if we just choose to walk away, are we, can, are people going to think we're a failure? Are we, are we, you know what I'm saying? Like, and I think it's important to not let your ego kind of get involved. 100%. Yeah. I mean, you can have an ego to help drive you and give you that like energy to keep pushing and to operate at a standard that you feel best, best represents yourself. But you have to, once you get to a place where you are beginning to just feel that, burnout which is so common in the restaurant industry um you gotta take a minute you gotta be able to step back and just kind of reset and figure out a way to recalibrate mm-hmm. otherwise yeah it's just a so is that, effect is that what you say what is happening in your circuses burnout i'll just say that at the time of 2015 after getting through our first year which you know statistically most restaurants are set up to fail yeah. but we were not that's not part of my mindset there's no way but 2015 was just a lot, very tumultuous. Um, the partnership was just getting um, a little rocky. There was other things going on in my life at that time that just became, it just got to a point where I was like, I need to get out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not a great situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need to remove myself from it and um, figure out a way to keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about just like business decisions in general? Were there um you know, hard decisions you made that looking back, you would have made a, a different decision, like based off of bottom line, based off a of profitability. And I think, initi- I think looking back, the most important thing was to have to have clear, um, terms on the roles and responsibilities when you enter into a partnership mm-hmm. so that those things don't get lost in translation or frustration doesn't fester and set up that everything is like clearly, um, organizational charts exactly yeah uh, and this is something that they identify in the e-myth and we're actually in our book club right now reading traction they talk about an attraction as well you literally have to even it seems like overkill if you're a, a, a restaurant with two owners and it's literally two owners who are also the employees like to go through the exercise of putting your name down to everything you're responsible for like you write out an organizational chart i'm the executive chef you're the director of operations here are your responsibilities here are my responsibilities and you put your name literally next to all these things all the elements of your business and then as you start scaling and growing you start taking your name off of those things and putting other people's names on them and but just having that that clear line of this is what I'm responsible for. This is what you're responsible for. Now you have accountability. So when things aren't happening, you can point to the organizational chart and say, list, like you said that you're going to do these things, right? 
Um, what's going through your mind as I say this? It's just thinking back to being like you wear so many hats. It's so easy to just want to take on everything. Yeah. Because of just not necessarily being a control freak, but you just want to have uh, oversight on every aspect of it because it is your baby in a way. Or it is. And you want to make sure that especially during these first few years of its life that, you know, you have all your bases covered, that you're trying to be prepared for every possible outcome and situation scenario. Um, but, you know, some life happens and you can't always control every yeah. aspect. You got to just let things happen and, and, and flow. But So how did you walk away from the business? Any lessons on how to do that grac- uh, graciously? With, so rather than, yeah, I mean, it was a very, it, rather than letting it become emotional and, I mean, it definitely stung and a bit. Not Which part of it stung the most? To have to walk away from something and then kind of feeling like I had uh, failed being able to like kind of work through it and mm-hmm. keep pushing. But I just reached an impasse and just knew I just, it was time for something different. Now, were you able to get paid out? Did you profit from this? Did you earn it? So, given the way that the business was structured, I uh, gave my official resignation um, and said I would get a lot this amount of time to help with the transition and just to get payment out for what I thought the shares of the business were worth at that time. Um and to be able to have a clean separation and to not be held liable for any future uh, financial obligations um, that I was completely removed from it. Do you have any advice on doing this for people who might be in your situation? Uh, Honestly, I mean, you can consult with other business owners and people, especially just business lawyers, or to do your own research. Um, But to know that, you know, if you have to go through this process and you have to have things clearly identified in writing so that there are no loose ends. And to just be able to, if you're trying to walk away or negotiate something in the end, um, you got to consult with a lawyer. Yeah. I mean, what things didn't you know going into this? This is the first time you're ever walking away from a business. What are the things you learned that you can give somebody a heads up for? If, if you're thinking about parting ways with a partner, for you, whatever reason, do these things. You have a strategy at the very beginning because it's not always going to work out as much as you want it to. Sometimes things just don't work out. And so be maybe to have that exit strategy um, in whatever um, terms clearly explained and um, noted in writing at the very beginning before you even dive into it should probably get that done yeah and I think honestly you should this is something that not, not nearly enough people do in my opinion have your exit strategy when things are good when you open when things are good what go through that exercise with your partners. What happens if one of us wants to leave and what do we need to do to make that break as smoothly as possible when it happens, if it happens. Um, there's a great book that discusses this uh, finish big by Bo Burlingham. Um, I highly recommend that book. Most people's exit, exit strategy in this industry is death. I joke, but it's true. Well, you just don't think about that. So what would you know? What you know now, keep on that. Any other advice before we move on? Um, no, other than, if whether you whether you know this uh, whether you know your potential partner for a long time or not at the end of the day it's a business transaction I mean at the end of the day it's business yeah okay, gotta leave your personal shit out of it things happen people and, change and too. things happen people grow including yourself mm-hmm. so to be able to have something lined up that's be prepared for that and do so rather than trying to figure it out when things are not great yeah that's so, just kind of 
So what's your thought process um, at this point in your life? You you break ties. You're now you're free. So I'm just completely trying to sever myself and just being like, okay, I need a major life reset. And now I have time, which was not a luxury I had. And I'd be like, what am I going to do? So <clears throat> a few months prior <clears throat> to having my um, official last day with Anju, I had gone out to L.A. and was introduced to some people out there. I had a great time. I'd never been to that part of California and decided that I'd just buy one-way tickets and get a chance to travel and just get a chance to see some stuff that were on my list of things to do. But being in the throes of restaurant life and opening up new business, I was, there was no way I was even thinking about that. But now I had this opportunity to do it, so I did it. So I bought a one-way ticket, started in L.A., and just did my own little, as I call it, my own little Anthony Bourdain reservations and just eat and meet people and just, you know, experience life. Get perspective. And, I think it's huge. Yeah, and just see what other people are doing and just maybe, you know, thinking, like, maybe I could move somewhere else um, outside of New England. So not everybody can um, do this, right? It's, it's not easy for everyone just to pick up and kind of be mobile and be a, a nomad for a couple of years. What did you do to set yourself up to do that? Because I think it's really important that people do this. I think that if there's a will, there's a way for sure. That if you wanted to make something happen, you'll figure out a way to do it no matter what. If, if it's a financial obstacle, personal, or just your fear. Was selling your shares of Anju, did that help make this possible? That, that definitely helped fund okay the opening part of it for sure. Um, But it wasn't anything like super extravagant. You know, I had contacts that I had made in every place I had went. Were you cooking? Were you you working? I was not. uh, Basically, after May, I had taken like a two-month sabbatical from just work and just everything. Just a major reset. Mm -hmm. Just to like clear out everything and to just recalibrate. Um, But two months is what I took when I had found myself back. But uh, yeah, I spent time on the West Coast in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and then the pop-up idea happened because I had gotten to a point where I was like, okay, I mean, all these great people. And um, it wasn't until I met my friend, Chef Dan Lacey, who had a restaurant uh, with his buddy, um, originally from New Jersey, um, in Denver, called Rebel Restaurant. And coincidentally, he had gone to culinary school uh, with my friend's older brother from New Hampshire. Got it. Um, so there was a connection there and I went and ate his restaurant. I loved his vibe, creative, um, and just good energy at this time. I was like, it's very important to be selective about who I'm allowing to spend my time with and who I'm allowing into my world. Um, but hit it off with him, started doing, uh, a ramen pop-up, um, at his restaurant. And that's where sheep and for, uh, sheep and wolves was born. Um, this just kind of mantra of just, you know, wolves don't lose sleep over the opinions of sheep. If you want to do something, just do it. Um, and no rules and to just connect with chefs, artists, um, creators and just make fun shit happen. Just be, and right? just fucking do it and yeah. just be, yeah. And get outside of the, sometimes the restraints of operating within the rules or whatever you want to call it of restaurant life. 
So this is a, a topic that I'm really excited about because, again, like I would tell anybody, like this is what you do. You do pop-ups. You collaborate. You get your, you work on relationships, getting your brand out there, developing your brand, building your email list. This is all stuff you can do before you ever even look at a physical space, right? Um, what do we need to know about pop-ups as far as how to do those well, things that people don't consider, if they're new to pop-ups that you should consider, that, you know, is anything you got blindsided by? Kind of get into that. <clears throat> I think more so is just recognizing the fact that, you know, you're a guest in someone else's home. Um, this is not your physical space. So at the end of the day, this needs to benefit the person that you are doing a pop-up with or collaborating with. Because at the end of the day, you're doing it to make money. I mean, obviously you're doing it to market and cross-promote or whatever your intentions are behind it. But at the end of the day, you're doing it to make money and to be building whatever it is that you're doing. So how do you make that win-win situation? Where is so. That? The way that I had structured it was to, um, you know, use the vendors or I would pick up my own. It all came down to just purchasing the ingredients and then, you know, allowing to the host uh, to take all the beverage sales because I don't need that. I'm not making beverage. I'm making food. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you're using their vendors, I mean, you structure in a way where you're paying your food and you operate where you're making a profit. I mean, yeah, granted, it's not going to be a lot. But it's something to help fuel and keep things going. Um, but, you know, you're having to be so as a win-win, a mutually beneficial situation. Yeah. So the, the, the wins for you are you're working on your recipes, you're working on getting exposure, building your brand. Creating. And the biggest thing is just finding a vehicle to just stay creative and to partner with people who are doing the same thing, you know, just the same energy behind an approach. Yeah. And I think that's really where the, the, the benefit to pop-ups, if done well, is really in – is 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 hitchhiking or, or attaching your cart to an already successful brand and they they on their social media are promoting this pop-up we're going to do vice versa so it's a it's a good way to kind of just cross promote and support each other to grow your brand to grow awareness um so there's those that's a win-win there um purchasing so you, what you're doing is you're going through their vendors and basically saying hey like on this date um i'm gonna need this can you place this order how does that benefit the, the restaurant owner because they're spending more money with the vendor, they get better deals. No, because whatever the sales are at the end of the event, you go to pay off all your expenses, and then whatever's left over, minus the bar, it's all whatever's divvied up between the food. I would take 100% of the food sales because I was doing all the food. Okay. But I was covering the cost of all the food expenses if I was going through the restaurant and their vendors. So all the expenses were paid. They would be making money on the beverage side, or if it was ticketed, I would be making my money and making sure that I sold out of food that I would take the profit from the food sales. Got it. Um, and are, are the people that would normally be, were you only doing this during off hours so that I was doing it on an off day, not okay. during normal business hours. Yeah. So yeah. that's another thing too. That was important. It's like, I don't want to be encroaching upon normal operations. Yeah. It's- so basically now you have this physical space that normally you wouldn't be making money on during those hours, but now you can monetize your space during off exactly. hours. Yeah. It'd be a win-win situation and doing something that you know that people are going to show up to. Okay. So they're opening up their space. They're getting the profit from the, um, the bar. Um, you're getting the profit from the food. You're not paying them rent or anything like that. Um, in the situation where I do in the pop-ups during that time, no. Okay, cool. Any other lessons on what about like, are you covered underneath their license? Do you need to go get licensed to do pop-ups? Uh, I did not do that. Okay. Yeah. As long as I wasn't like doing anything that was harming anyone or making anyone sick, like, I was operating kind of as a uh, a gypsy chef during these pop-up situations. I mean, I'm all about doing the right thing, you know, like following the rules. But I think there's a certain period when you're first getting started that, like, it's – there's an easy period to fly under the radar. And I, and I don't want to encourage people to 
No, I mean, that, do what is you're not, gonna that do. is clearly not the message that we're trying to put out there. Yeah, like, but, but just, you gotta, also at the same time, you do, what do what it takes do. to make it happen. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think if you are doing that, know that eventually it's going to catch up with you. Yeah. So like, don't plan to do that forever, but you can definitely, um, you don't want to expect that if you get away with the first and second time that you're always going to get away with yeah, it. Yeah, never get complacent <laughs> or too comfortable. Yeah. But it was just a <laughs> way to keep doing what I really enjoy doing and collaborating with all these great people that I met along the way and just kind of help fund this time where I was in this transient place, just kind of drifting from one place to another. Yeah. And this is your first uh, attempt at pop-ups, right? I mean, outside of the collaborations with events, like hosting events during the restaurant during at Anjou, um, like with the Honeypot crew. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Just on my own, just kind of winging it. So one of the things I'm really curious about is how you promote, how you drive traffic to a pop-up. I'm wondering if that comes later in your story because maybe you sharpen the sword on that a little yeah, bit no, later. Yeah, during that time, it was just all, I mean, whatever local publications, like with Eater or food or events, um, promoting food and local, uh, food, local food events happening um, to whatever contacts the people that I met and collaborated with had. On top of my own, I mean, social media obviously is going to be your best bet above anything it's there and it's free yeah and um if you gain enough traction and garner enough uh, attention i mean you know i mean you did you have a good name for yourself at this point i mean Anju kind of did really well i'm assuming that you probably your social following probably I definitely created. try to leverage that into all the um marketing of the events and to provide some draw in a place where no one knew me like being in denver colorado no one knew who i was but say a ramen pop-up and denver or Colorado loves their ramen and people showed up. Yeah. And it could have been anybody. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So I know this isn't where your travels ended. You did a lot more traveling after this abroad, correct? Yeah. So just very quickly was LA, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco. And then I was in Denver and then I came back into New York and that was just here in the U S there's a couple other places I wanted to hit, but just was trying to just packing too much in. But, um, I found myself back in new England and this is at the end of 2016 and then I landed an opportunity to move to the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, to St. John. Oh, I love St. John. I'd never been there before. It was December in, or November, December in New England, and it's like, sure, why not? It was kind of a no-brainer. Was the, the Wave time. still there at this point? What's up? I think it was a place called The Wave. Where no. You, like, you know what I'm talking about? Mm. If you order a certain drink, like, they would come out with like buckets of water, and they would literally, it was like a secret. Like You don't order The Wave because it's a, a, it's a tourist trap. In the sense that, like, you would get buckets of water thrown on you. Oh, no, I never <laughs> I never saw that nor knew of that. Okay. But that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so you're at St. John. I'm at St. John. This is 2016 through 2017. Um, I was working at a uh, resort, uh, Canal Bay. Okay. Um, like, the best and, like, the biggest resort on St. John. And loved it. I mean, how could you not? It's the Caribbean. Right. And it's not a New England winter. And... Of all food to be cooking, it's Italian food for whatever reason. And they were really busy. And what I learned there was how to handle volume and how to really just get over this place of being an angry cook or to try to be better at that, to limit that, and to just be mindful of just staying organized and that you got to work with a team of people that you're with and you're all working towards the same thing and then it'll be over before you know it. So where are you mentally at this point? Are you um, <clears throat> planning to, to come back and open your – is there a goal to open now, your own thing? My goal at this time was to find a place that was a, another place to live outside of New England. 
And I was like, oh, maybe I'll go live in an island, see, make a go of it. Just figure out why not, give it a try. Yeah. Um, but at this time, I'm like, after traveling and doing some of these fun collaborations and pop-ups, I was in a really good place. I was just kind of feeling like, okay, <clears throat> I spent like six months just kind of recalibrating and just getting back into like a healthy and positive mindset um, and just be able to focus on like what was the next thing. Um, living on an island helped kind of um, help me see like what was really important. Different pace of life. Exactly. Yeah. And just kind of minimize a lot um, as far as what I thought I needed and to just you know, I could live just a happy life. I don't need to be doing all of these things and just have it be simple. Keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the island life was a different one. I mean, beautiful place. And just being there, just having to be so laid back. I love that. So yeah. ultimately what brought you back? Uh, there was a girl that I was dating in uh, Boston. I'll always get you in trouble. Um, <laughs> and it was during a two month break that everyone, all the restaurant uh, people took uh, every year because it was hurricane season. Um, I never lived anywhere where hurricanes were even a thing. Um, so I just thought it was just going to be a really heavy thunderstorm. But uh, <laughs> that was not the case during that year. In 2017, those two hurricanes that just blew through the Caribbean and destroyed the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. Um, that was a crazy thing. That was five years ago. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I'm just, I guess I won't be going back. Um, yeah. The plan was to go back there and try to pursue an expat life and try to move to Thailand or something. Um, but I ended up in Boston and that's where I had, I had already lined up some stages at Copa and at little donkey, uh, some Ken orange rest and Jamie yeah. Bissonnette restaurants. Jamie past guest. I think I've had him on twice or awesome. three times now. I love great Jamie. guy. Yeah. Great guy. And, uh, that's where I had ended up with a stage random, um, not planned at uni. And that's where I met chef Tony Messina and when I knew that I wasn't going back to uh, St. John, I was trying to create a life and walking a path down in Boston again. So I'm curious because that's I, mean, I, want, I wouldn't say it, um, it's a step up by, by any means going from where you are here in, in the Kittery. But that's a different market, a much more competitive market. Boston's a different game. Totally. Were there any lessons that you garnered during that time seeing how restaurants operate at that level at that at that competitive level absolutely and the, mean, jamie bisonet and ken oranger are at the top of that's that like the upper echelon of the restaurant yeah. industry next to like being michelin starred and all that which i personally don't have any interest in but just seeing how a place could operate at such a high level with so many people and just with so much talent um and just doing it really well and you know honestly working at uni i tell tony it's like uni or tell people it's like the uni university um but just the talent they're so great and inspiring i mean you're working there with people who are to me all better than me and that's the goal and i'm just like you know what i'm gonna prove to all of you that i can be here along with you and it was just like a nice friendly competitiveness and just um, motivation. Yeah. Well, that's the only way you grow is exactly. by surrounding yourself with people who exactly. are going to force you to elevate your own skills. And hands down, it was the most intense kitchen uh, experience, restaurant uh, I have ever worked in. Good, bad? Nothing but good. Okay. I take nothing but positives away from there. What did you, what are the biggest takeaways from that experience? The biggest takeaway of being able to combine highbrow, lowbrow ingredients and to be using the best of what you can use 
and all those like nice bougie ingredients, which I was not privy to or, yeah. or had not experienced before. Um, and honestly, just to be working around people who just all just were striving for not perfection, but just high I standard. really, really, a really, really high standard. Yeah. And yeah, that was a lot of fun. So how long were you there? I was at Uni for just about a year. Okay. Um, so we're looking at eight because I'm at this time. Now? Yeah. Cause now I've been kind of formulating an idea of like, okay, I could, I'd like to try and take another go at opening the up shop again. Coming back. It's coming back. And, um, after working at Uni, I'm like, man, Tony had offered me a job to be a sous chef. And I was very, uh, that was a high compliment to me. Yeah. Um, to be recognized and be even considered um, to kind of go down that path potentially. But I had been making visits since I was back in New England, had been kind of gravitating towards like a lot of the friends and people that I had Met more or less ghosted yeah. um, from when I had departed from Anju and reconnected with. Um, and just obviously, you know, I have a foundation here um, in this area. So I was gravitating back here. Um, I had reconnected with Dave Vargas and another past guest on the show, yep. Vita Cantina. Love and, Dave. Uh, Ornells. Chef Smiley. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he also gets, he's involved with the Jumpin' Jays too. Right? Yeah. He's part of that restaurant group, the Jay Hospitality yeah. Group. And Jay Group, I think yeah, is what the Jay Group. And yeah, Dave's been around for a while. Super great guy. Um, have so much love and respect for him. Um, pillar in the community now. Um, he's become the old guard. No. Correct me if I'm wrong. Were and I'm, I'm. This is just kind of a guess. Were you really making close connections with these individuals at Annika Jane's, the pop up, the, the the chefs after dark? I no, it wasn't really my thing. Oh, okay. Like my net, my network was within Black Birch, and like uh, the extension of that was up into Portland, and the chefs up there. And like, yeah, I mean, I I know, and the people, uh, the chefs around um, this area and the seacoast, but not in a way where you know, nothing beyond just. I was just curious because I think what they did with that um, the chefs after dark was I don't I don't know if it was the intention, but to host that for for the community of chefs and for like foodies and the, like, it was a great networking tool, uh, and they just met and I know that everybody knows who they they, they being uh, David Vargas and Lee Frank Lee Frank thank you very much who kind of put that together and it was just a way to kind of like do like their own local like cooking competition mm-hmm. and have fun with it I think it was genius. The the talent you're attracting onto yourself by doing that, the networking that you're doing, just to meet and bump up against other passionate hospitality people, and that was the people that that those events drew. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, and, and honestly, it was just a great way to bring the restaurant community together at that time yeah. and give them something to do. But anyway, J- uh, David Vargas, awesome dude. Yeah, take it from there. Uh, connected with Dave, and then he had just casually mentioned that I should talk to Jay and um, just have a conversation with him. So long story short, met with Jay a few times and had a few conversations and decided to make a move back to the area and pursue the possibility of opening up a spot in Portsmouth. So at this point, was Dos Amigos still going? Dos Amigos was still going. And I'm surprised that the, the J Group dropped that brand because I feel like burritos is a hot relatively low good margin it's easy and yeah um they were looking to just move the location i think to take advantage of the new developments over in the other part of portsmouth which is where you know the port walk place area yeah Yeah. um which made sense 
um, and that they him only, that's right they moved Dos Amigos to that did, new space and that he was looking for someone to partner with to take over that space got the it original at 107 State Street and I, I'm a I'll admit this. I'm a huge Jay McSherry fanboy. Like I have no problem. It's more admiration because I think that he's created so much opportunity for chefs on the seacoast and the way that he's built his restaurant group by literally just taking people that have come up. The majority of them came up through jumping Jays, Right. And he said, you have talent. You're going to go do your own thing. Eventually. How can I help? Right. How can I make that happen? Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know exactly what Jay's lane is, but it almost seems like he's like a developer, like a real, his thing is real estate today and just creating opportunity for people that he knows deserve it. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's, that's what much, everybody that's should pretty, be trying to do. That's a great, uh, great way to sum it up. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I love that approach and I love that. It's, it's not about what can I do, but how can I, again, like we mentioned earlier, win-win situations. Like how can I find somebody who has talent and how can I give them an opportunity? Is that kind of what was going on in your circumstance? Mm-hmm. And, um, I was dragging my feet a little bit because I was unsure if I wanted to be back in the area. And plus just kind of the mindset that like, oh, I have my first restaurant down on the other side of the bridge. How's that going to feel? But I just wanted to just prove to myself that I could do it. Yeah. um, And kind of just do it on my own um, with any out without any kind of outside influence, just kind of telling me and dictate what this new place is going to be like um, to be able to just have full creative reign on it entirely and the experience and just the culture that I wanted to cultivate. Yeah. I mean, this just goes back to the power of your network, right? And I think um, the, the time and energy you put early in your career in making those relationships and having people that would be willing to be like, Oh, like what about Gary Kim? You know, and just putting yourself out there and leaving good impressions. You're going to create opportunities. You don't know in what way that's going to come back, what form that's going to manifest. Yeah, you know where, and you don't know where life's going to take you. Exactly. Like, don't burn bridges. Like you don't know who you're going to end up seeing again. And you don't know where you're going to end up. So, so just, you come back. Just have, keep an open mind, you know? Yeah. It's 2018 now, right? It's 2018. You opened uh, in May of 2019. Did I see that? Yeah, Mr. Kim's, we opened in May 2019. But okay. uh, Dave and Will were gracious enough to allow me to just kind of try some menu stuff out and some ideas uh, during the four months of winter. Uh, prior to opening. So um, when did the first conversation have with, you, there's a space. This is like uh, fall of 2018. 18. So like we'll say October, 2018. Yeah, something around that time is when yeah. the conversation started to happen. So um, I want to start pulling back the layers on this because I think it's a good, we're going to get some nuggets on how to ramp into a restaurant space. Yeah. So you didn't just buy the space and develop a menu. Like there was thought behind this. It there was thoughts like. about what, the menu was going to look like. I mean, obviously, it was going to be Asian-inspired food because it's kind of like my my area or that I like to cook in. <clears throat> but um, rather than just kind of going into it, just trying to test out menu um, ideas and dishes, um, obviously, we knew we had to do noodles in some capacity just because New England loves their pe- people. Yeah, yeah, people love their noodles. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think your brand is associated with that. Yeah. Yeah. But to just be able to get people aware that this was happening and that I'm coming back to the area and I think to try to market as some like triumphant return or something um, but just that I was back in the area and that I was trying to make another go of it and um, with a new idea and I knew that I wanted to be different from the first and to really stand out and just to kind of highlight the experiences and that I've had um, after being gone 
for like a two-year hiatus and to just do something different and that I felt best represented me. So what was your strategy on, I mean, you have like basically from October to May, so not a huge amount of time really. Um, what were you, what was your strategy for creating awareness around Mr. Kim's? So just from doing events and getting people to come out and just garnering attention again. What kind of publicity. events? What do these events look like? So Liar's Bench uh, hosted me for a little bit um, as part of like a spaghetti western series. Just something fun, cool little collaboration. Um, they're also part of the, of the J group. Yep. Um, and then Ornell's, which was the biggest one. That was four consecutive months, every Monday and Tuesday um, of people getting my food and just getting kind of a sneak peek of what this new venture was going to look like. Um, and then we had done one pop-up like a, two weeks before opening uh, at Lure um, through uh, Meredith, who was the general manager at that time there, um, and just to use their space and just show an actual sneak peek of what the menu was going to look like, was going to be. So when you're approaching, I mean, obviously, Liar's Bench and Ornell's is in the, the J Group family. Mm-hmm. Laura wasn't, though. Correct me if I'm wrong. Lure was not. They were independent of that. So how do you approach these restaurants to say, hey, I want to come in and do this? Honestly, I didn't have to. It just kind of happened in a conversation and just was um, approached to me. Okay. It was, it was thrown, it was, it landed on my lap from other people. Well, I mean, you probably, I I didn't have to, I mean, I had to actively pursue and see if it was like worth it or not. Um, But just considering that it was in close proximity to where we were going to be opening. Yeah. That it made total sense. Yeah. Awesome. Any other lessons as far as like how to ramp in, how to create awareness, things that you didn't consider that were were, <clears throat> were new to you, maybe based off of the mentorship you were receiving at this time? Because you had access to the Jay McSherry group, which in itself, you're that's one of the, the things I was cu- kind of curious. I was hoping to, that would come into the conversation. You mentioned you just want to do your own thing, right? You wanted to go into this and have this be your thing, but you're also getting access to the Jay group. You have which, a lot of resources with Chef Matt Lewis, Dave Vargas, and... Um, you have a lot of accounting, I'm assuming, yeah. right? Marketing, I'm assuming. Absolutely. Uh, are they like, what, what does that look like? I mean, cause I do, I do think there's benefits to going into a restaurant group like that. And I think you're going to see a lot of, again, just exactly what Jay's doing, creating opportunity for other people. You focus on doing what you are good at being a chef or front of house, whatever skill, hospitality skill you have. We focus on the rest, mm-hmm. I, I, but I don't know. I'm making a lot of assumptions. No, right. no, no, it's not. You're hitting the notes because as far as my situation, I can't speak on others, but just that was a big draw. And plus, just I'm a big proponent or fan of organization. Um, and having to have the business side of it be already tried and true um, and set up so that I could focus on just opening the restaurant and putting together the team and working out all the logistics on my end. Um, but also being have, having access to what I refer to as like the nucleus as his office management um, to be able to see how those things come together in a way where we were just trying to figure those out at the first time around with Anju and having to develop these from nothing. Um, but these are already systems in place mm-hmm. to allow my time and energy to be devoted to running the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So um, and you, I think your, your path into the J group is unique because most people who end up and correct me if I'm wrong, again, that you, you're probably much closer. I know you're much closer to this group than I have ever been. But usually you have to come up through one restaurant and you kind of earn it where you kind of – was there any like um, – did you ever feel like there was hostility because you weren't somebody who kind of came up through the, the, the Honestly, the if there was, 
I didn't pick up on that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't feel that in any way. Yeah. Um, just curious. I'm just like throwing yeah. random thoughts right now. Yeah, 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 no. Uh, but what me again, um, another restaurant group, well-regarded, probably arguably the, the most successful group on the seacoast as far as what they've accomplished, the amount of total restaurants that are successful, any like big lessons learned on how they do things that has stuck with you? I mean, it's a, I mean, you gotta have organization and have the right people so that you have proper delegate work delegation. Because you can't do everything yourself. As much as you really want to, and you can do it, but at some point in time, you have to like be able to trust somebody else yeah. to do those things. So you can dedicate your time to scaling your business. I mean, you're not uh, something that I talked to Dagan Migerditch, uh, the co-owner of uh, Liars Bench, was that you know you can't. It's really challenging to try and work on your business when you're working in your business. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to, at some point to remove yourself from that so you can be better at being your you know director of operations yeah for sure um so you had a, a two-year stretch with mr kim is 2019 yeah to two uh, 2021 just recently right yep. um take us through the life like the, the the life cycle how how do things go during the opening what was there a peak during like time in business and ultimately what was the the reason for walking away so we had garnered a lot of traction leading up between the pop-up uh Lars Bench and Ornels, and with that one at Lure, um, so that when we were opening, like people were excited, people knew what was happening, and people were excited. And I had an incredible opening team. Um, some of them that whom were um, inherited from other restaurants within the J Group, but a very special team of people that helped make our first year really. Um, I don't know, magic, magical. It, I can't really describe it. There's no way. In that point in time, I had exactly who I needed to do and carry out the vision I had for this second, for Mr. Kim's. And it was a very special to me. What were you doing differently this time? Like intentionally knowing after opening one restaurant, after seeing, getting perspective, working in these great restaurants where you see how other people are doing it, going into this restaurant, what were you going to do differently to make yourself more successful? The mantra was to be able to stand out and just be creative and just on all fronts, beverage, food and beverage, and just from the culture and from the experience that people were going to have there and how we could just shake the tree. Um, and our mantra was positive vibes only um, and just to create a very positive work environment and culture um, and experience and to shake the tree, to just do something really different. Because, I mean, Portsmouth, like anywhere... There's more and more restaurants coming in, it's people ridiculous. trying to test out things. And, you know, it, again, you have the places that are pillars who have been there for 10 plus years and people know them. Their house, they're all on people's top of mind, their household names. How can we stand out and really kind of make a statement and just be like, hey, this is Mr. Kim's. It's this special group of people and we're doing what we love. And, yeah. Would you say you achieved that? I would say we definitely had achieved what I had set out in a way where looking back um, I couldn't have done it without the people that I had Yeah. Um, but then you know not to put it on you know COVID that definitely shifted the year two um, was not a uh, backup I mean, plan for yeah. anybody the, um, the first that year time. for most restaurants is not pop- profitable oh, you know like you're just getting open you're just you're, you're, you're scraping on you're building momentum year two is usually where you start to catch 
pace. You start to figure out, you start to get true identity. You start to figure out what's working, what's not working. And you start leaning into things. And, you, and that's where things start to, year two is a big year. That's a hard time to put everything, to take all that momentum and stop. Yes. Let, let's not make it, let's, you're being very modest right now. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, like, so, no, like that is, that is going to absolutely be horrible. Like horrifying for your business if you're at year two before you really have those dedicated regulars, you know, like it takes time to build that shit up. Mm-hmm. And even with, you know, people knowing me in the area, there was still a lot of people who had no idea who I was or, you know, what that we were even in existence. So we were still having to like get the word out and build up our awareness, build up our brand awareness um, and just pe- letting people know that we were here. Um, but yeah, year one was really fun. I mean, it was a lot felt even harder than uh the first time around but um well, i think we were right on the cusp of getting the momentum that we needed going into the summer of year two to kind of get us into a sweet spot so what was it um looking at the deal that you had right just to kind of to get into like the the really nitty-gritty of the business side of this um what was it about this opportunity that really sung to you about about being right? Were the numbers like were you profitable? Like were you doing good? Were the numbers good? First year, I mean, it wasn't bad. We let's put it this way: um, the losses that we had in year one were not as high as more as restaurants normally have in their first year. Just try to keep it as tight as possible. I mean, I'm an advocate for one year of operating capital just to have mm, that yeah. one year of operating capital because you might it might take a year and a half to get into black just with your business alone. Mm-hmm. You need that runway. Um, did you guys have money? Did you have that kind of b- buffer? So that was one thing also as far as like deciding to go in the partnership with Jay. Um, we were allowed to have help in a way that you know I wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. Um, Specifically, what kind of help? Jay's a numbers guy, um, and being able to help manage manage the uh, finance aspect of it in a way where we were not, you know, losing too much money, and still be able to carry on and have not be in the red is what I was saying. So you're getting mentorship. Yeah, you're getting people who have a track record of twenty plus years of doing this building brands you get that you get access to that team that that guidance right so you can focus on doing what you do best and i, I don't want to make assumptions but i'm assuming it's it's a being a, a, a creative talent right a uh, leader um fill in the blank you know what i'm saying um so you get that um what was the i mean i don't want to spend a lot of time on covid because i feel like no we don't need to yeah we're, <laughs> like, we're, everyone's tired we've spent it. enough time it's on ex- it. it's an exhausted topic um but eventually uh you made the decision to um shutter the doors or the close uh what what came to that ultimately what happened was was just what i initially thought was going to be kind of i was in it for the long game you know i was trying to build up something so that i could get back and kind of pick up where i left off with anju but in a totally different mindset um and provide an experience that was still unique to me and to partner up with someone that, um, who had the structure and the systems in place and where I could learn from to help, you know, go beyond just being a chef in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, to be more on like the operations side and still allowed me to be creative, but to really kind of cultivate a place that was special and unique to me and, um, do something that was different still that from, you know, anywhere else in the seacoast in the area to stand out still. 
Um, but ultimately it just came down to that I was just not happy. I just had come to a place where I was just so exhausted. I mean, we all had to go through the throes of it and figure out and be creative and how to like weather the storm. Um, and I came out of it in a, on a sense where I was kind of like, okay, is this really what I want to be doing? Is what I love and been doing for the last 10 years something that I want to be doing for the rest of my life? So I had to... You're saying noodles or the no, restaurant industry? No, I'm just industry. talking about the restaurant industry okay. entirely. Like, it was a time to make a career move. I mean, I don't blame you, man. I, honestly, sometimes I have that question after interviewing people and knowing the truth of the industry. You know, like, is now the best time to be working in an industry trying to open a restaurant? It's a rough time right now, man. I mean, there are definitely avenues you can pursue where you can do it. Um, in a way where it makes sense, but as far as just trying to go about it as a brick and mortar restaurant route, like, I mean, you gotta be prepared for the challenges now and the adjustments you have to make. It's not, not like what it was five, no. ten years ago. No. So, um, so ultimately, you, you were having this dialogue with yourself. Is this what I want to do? Is this is this right? This path right for me? I mean, you're still working in restaurants. I'm still working in restaurants. Um, you're. Is it? Is it? Can I say that you're back at, at uh, you're actually with Chapel in Maine now? I'm out here helping Chapel in Maine because, like anywhere, um, staffing is not the easiest thing to come by these days, um, as for anybody. So, for the listeners, Chapel in Maine is the second restaurant that the uh, Ben, Jake, and Gavin trio that opened Black Birch. They opened this what, like five years ago? Yep, five years ago. Um, now you're the what is? Your, do you have a title here? Or are you kind of nope. just filling in roles? I'm just kind of in here, just filling in roles and just helping out where I can. Um, and just, you know, my just coming, just allowing me to just kind of carry on um, post Mr. Kim's and just to reassess and evaluate what it is the next move might be. Yeah. And I give all my guests before they come on the show a warning. Like I talk about personal stuff. And uh, the reason why I talk about personal stuff isn't to expose you, to make you feel uncomfortable, to to get the nitty gritty. It's, it's to learn through real life stories yeah, of like, sure. what happens. And you have to talk about the uncomfortable stuff to kind of get into those lessons. Um, so, I mean, on that note, like, what did what did you learn about exiting a restaurant group that a well regarded restaurant group? And I mean, how do you do that um, gracious, graciously? And how do you do it with respect? How do you do it in a way that you don't burn bridges? Like, how did you go about doing that? Uh, you have to remember to leave your emotion and pride out of it, and that you leave everything open-ended because you don't know where you're going to end up. I mean, you could be thinking whatever it is now in the moment, but who knows what's going to happen in a day or two mm-hmm. or in a year, yeah. two years, whatever it might be. Um, that you have to still remain professional. It's nothing. It's not personal, and you're doing it for what ultimately is right for you. And that, you know, there are things... I mean, every situation is different, but the most important thing was to... Um, just close one chapter, but just leave it open so that there's still good relations. Yeah, and, and you're not. No, I do do not burn bridges. I don't think anybody's going to hold it against you closing level. a restaurant in the yeah. middle of this pandemic. But you know, like it definitely was a. It was again feeling like you know I was giving up too soon, but I mean I gave everything I had last year. Yeah, in 2020. I'm sure no one's going to question yeah, that. Yeah, but I mean, I am my own heart. I am my own worst critic. Yeah. So was it ultimately the choice that you made, or was it kind of a collective group that made uh, the choice that maybe this? It's something isn't that working? I decided on my own because you know it was down to bare bones. Like who was going to carry the torch so I could focus on something else? We didn't have that luxury. Um, and then just having the 
hard and honest conversations with Jay. What did those conversations look like? It was just a conversation of just being like, hey, you know, this is what's happening. This is where I'm at. Um, And what was happening specifically? Just feeling just tired and just the absolute loss um, for the joy of cooking Mm. and working in the restaurant grind. Mm -hmm. How did he receive it? Totally understanding. Yeah. At the end of the day, Jay is very understanding and reasonable and compassionate human being. Yeah. So, you know, try to give it a go. Um, Did he try to coach you and steer you in the right direction? Was there... I mean, at the end of the day, Jay is a very busy guy. Yeah. Between family and his professional life, he has a lot of things going on. Um, And we were so new, too. So, um, ultimately, he respected of where I was at and, you know, didn't harbor any thing in a way of like, Oh my God, you're giving up. You know, that was absolutely not the conversation we were having. He was totally understanding. Yeah. So where are you now? Right now I'm in limbo. Yeah. And it's exciting, but also freaking me out a little bit. Um, the freaking out part is kind of subsided because now it's like, it's back to where anything is possible. Um, but also just coming out on the other end of the last two years and just kind of having an idea of like what I know that I don't want to get back into. What don't you want to get back and into? And what I don't want to get back to, I'd like to be on the opposite side of the workday. It's like how you can still enjoy cooking and being creative and transferring the skill set that I've acquired working in and running restaurants um, and how to make that into something different and be able to get outside of being in a kitchen so do you have a i mean if you're get if you got back into this industry i mean there's i think one of the, the i hate to say that there's like silver linings to the, the the pandemic but there absolutely are i think it's forcing the industry to look at how we've been doing business and saying there's a better way yeah for sure you know there's a better way um not just in the work-life balance but i'm saying like business models of we're using an old antiquated model where we say 10% is good, but is it? It's not, you know, and and it's forcing us to to slow down and to communicate. And I think we're going to kind of, we have the choice to kind of come back and redefine what we want the industry to be. And you see it happening right now. Um, so, I mean, do you see yourself being involved in a different business model in, but within food and beverage where maybe you do like a membership or you're a personal chef or, or something along those lines? I'm excited for whatever the future holds. I mean, there's so much uncertainty, but I just know that, you know, I'm just trying to stay the course and pursue and explore other opportunities um, and see where that could lead. But um, ultimately, just I, there's, I don't know, there's so much unknown. Yeah. Well, I'm happy you, you made the choice that you thought was right for you. You know, and I think a lot of people are afraid to make those choices because of ego. Right. I think that you actually have a good relationship with ego. It seems like you're not afraid to walk away from something that's not working for you. And I think a lot of people are afraid of that because, again, like they're afraid of what does this mean? What are people going to think about me if I do this? Right. Um, how do you manage that dialogue, that internal dialogue? That comes from whatever helps you to just turn the noise off. For me, that was buying a surfboard last year and just getting out into the water. And I'm already like a waterman. I like being out there. But the surfing has been able to just drown all that stuff out. And if I have any kind of aggression or sadness that I need to get out, I just get out there into the water. It's like super therapeutic and meditative. I love it. you got to find something that is not work-related. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that to me was like the biggest thing that helped me and just staying active and keeping an active mind. I love it. So one thing that, um, I really want to focus on now with the podcast, uh, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. On that note of transformation, what do you think is broken about the industry? What needs to transform? If one thing changed about this industry, what needs to transform? I mean, first and foremost, it's just disparity of what the living wages are for people that work in the restaurant industry, especially in the back of house and even in the front of house. And, you know, there's been attempts that you've seen as far as, you know, including tips into um, gratuity into the menus or however that is, or gratuity dedicated to kitchen staff. But there has to be a better way to allocate the money and to boost up how a restaurant can operate so that the people that work in it and help keep things alive can, you know, be financially secure. I agree 100%. What what are some of the things that you think need to happen for that to happen? I think from, for me um, is for front of house staff to be able to have access to like health benefits and not have to work off a, not have to just solely rely on tips. It would be nice to see everyone getting paid a fair wage and then sharing those tips collectively because everybody is working collectively to get the product out and provide a service and experience. So why is that only on one side of the, um, yeah, one side of the, the, the one side of the team, yeah. you know? So there's actually a, a group, um, a restaurant right here locally, and I haven't seen this anywhere else where, um, it's, it's, um, the Oak House in mm. Newmarket. Yeah. And I don't know if you know, but they, if you work in that restaurant, you work every role, like back of house and in front of house shifts. It's so, a great like, idea. So you'll have like, but not, I think it, it is a good idea. I think it's probably extremely hard to execute. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> because let's be in honest, theory, how many yeah, people? In theory, it's great. How many people are, have that level of talent where they can be front of house and back of house and be good at both? Right. Um, usually, people gravitate towards one or the other because maybe they don't want to be social. You know, like that might not be for them. Um, but I, I, th- I think to have that that breadth of talent is a challenge in in that model. But I do think it's a it's a great solution to literally just break up the shifts. Right, so everyone gets different swings. So, like, you can get that front of house shift where you make big tips. Um, I have never seen anyone else doing that, hmm. or they, they rotate yeah. between shifts. Or I between like it roles. in theory. I think it's great because I mean, you have to overcome a lot of your own personal shit to be able to work in a restaurant or any like high intensity job, um, and to be able to just function at a high level. You know? Yeah. Um, that sounds fun to me, just because I am so like. I need to have multiple projects. Yeah. I like to learn as much as I can when I'm somewhere and just helps whatever can help me stay organized and keep things fresh, mm-hmm. you know, so you don't feel stagnant. Yeah. So how have you transformed over time? Um, so if the industry needs to transform by having a more equitable, uh, just a more equitable model, right, for everyone, how have you transformed? I was transforming just kind of like being able to let a lot of things go and to just chill the fuck out, essentially. Yeah. Um, and to just realize that, you know, there are more important things in life than just trying to be the best chef or make the best food or whatever other things that you're thinking of when you're thinking you're going to open up your own business or restaurant or whatever it is, is that you got to have fun. You got to keep it light. Yeah. I mean, you can still be a professional and like do what you love, but you got to remember to have fun. Life's so short. Yeah. You got to prioritize it. You got to block it. 
you know? Yeah. Um, and I think there's definitely a shift. I think that's another by another byproduct of the pandemic is that like we all got a taste of what slowing down feels like. And I think you're going to see we're coming back much more methodically, you know, slowly. Um, people aren't rushing to get back to work. I don't know if you've noticed. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and that, that hurts the industry at the same time that people are hesitant to get back to work because we need help so bad. But at the same time, it's forcing the industry's hand to be more accommodating. So there is a balance being in that right now. I mean, it sucks right now so bad. But I think 10 years from now, we're going to look back at this and be like, where would we have been if not for the pandemic? For sure. I mean, you it's know? definitely it's a transition like on a global scale. Um, but when it comes down to on the micro level, as far as businesses and how they operate, you have to adapt. You can't just because something's been working for the last 50 years, like doesn't, you know, where are we going to be? Yeah. Yeah. Gary, I've loved the free flowing portion of this conversation. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. And we're going to be right back to bust out a true speed round. And so I can get you back into the kitchen. So you're not in trouble. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by seven shifts. Seven shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more, all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Look, nowadays people rather send you a text message than speak to you directly face to face. That's just the way people choose to communicate and there's not much we can do about it or is there? Talk to the Manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is also convenient to you. Don't worry about personal information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the number that Talk to the Manager provides. You can even delegate customer feedback and divide the workload amongst your managers. Multiple managers can receive these texts. When one manager replies to a customer, the other staff will see their responses too. What I personally love most about Talk to the Manager is that you can fix issues immediately in private before complaints go public online. Many times when people do write a negative review, it's because they just want to be heard. And Talk to the Manager gives them that outlet to be heard before they bring it publicly and drag your name through the mud. Plus, with Talk to the Manager, get issues brought to your attention, whether it's an issue with your restaurant's service, product, or facility. Your guests will let you know whether you want to hear it or not, but this will help you improve. Using Talk to the Manager is so intuitive that no technology is required. If you can send a text message, you can use Talk to the Manager. 
manager. Show guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. That's www.talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable. We're back. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Positivity. What is your biggest weakness? Um, ruminating. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team or you're interviewing people? How to deal with a challenging or difficult situation. And what are you looking for? I'm looking for to see how they um, can manage themselves under pressure mm. and adversity. What's your biggest challenge today? My biggest challenge today was answering some of these questions in a way that I thought I knew I was talking about and um, to sit still. Mm. You're doing great, <laughs> man. Uh, share one code of conduct you believe, or sorry, one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. A way to be, a way to act. Uh, it's the two things that I learned from working at the bird. Sense of urgency and efficiency of motion and to be able to just know that it's the team environment and that you know everyone alongside you no matter who they are you gotta figure out a way to work with them what's one uncommon standard of service you teach your team something that is common within the four walls of your restaurants but not common throughout the industry to go above and beyond um i don't know i mean it's, that's what uh i feel like that falls in line with just uh the pre-shift aspect of uh, service and just getting everybody hyped up and motivated and ready to take on the day, like no matter what's coming your way, and just be able to push through. Yeah, um, but I mean, I feel like that's standard across the board. But it isn't I'm, though. You'd be surprised you know, how many people don't do a pre-shift or skip it. Like, and also have an important family meal, like to feel a sense of family and like you know that you're appreciated. Yeah, but you got to block time. You got to make time yeah. for it. Like, you know? gotta do any family meal sharp three thirty. Yeah, like be it's yeah. being on the clock. And ten know? minutes before service. Chef Tony would have us all go outside, all the entire kitchen team, just to get some fresh air. Yeah. Before getting crushed. These are rituals and they're huge. Yeah. And people do not pay enough or do not put enough emphasis and pressure on having rituals where you cover your, your values, where you, you point out, you know, like that's what this time is for. It's absolutely huge. It's a great answer. Uh, what's one book that you feel is a must read to make you a better person or restaurant owner? I think uh, right now uh, what I've been listening to today is uh, the Mindset Mentor on Ooh. Spotify. Um, I think that's a good one just for getting so it's you a podcast. Up. Yeah. Nice. I've been really big in the podcasts lately, um, actually for the last like couple of years now and during the pandemic, um, just to kind of keep having like a healthy dialogue, even though I may not be sitting in the room with someone, but just be constantly feeding my mind. We're surrounded by mentors. Yeah. You know, like they're out there. We can access knowledge and minds and, and viewpoints more than ever before. Um, it's powerful. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's super accessible. Yeah. Take advantage of it. What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do often enough or well enough? I think in general, um, to be able to find a way to show your staff that even though that you are driven to gain a profit that you appreciate or and are fucking grateful for the people that you have that decide to show up and stick with you yes i love it um transformative over transactional right 
I'm an advocate for that. Name one service you've hired or outsourced. So this is something that you know you could never do it as good as outsourcing it. And by outsourcing it, it might be a little more expensive, but overall, you're going to save time and energy and it's worth it. Uh, That would have to be just coming down to um, purchasing the noodles from Sun Noodles using for ramen. I mean, they make a great product and that saves a ton of time and labor on something that sells so incredibly well. Um, And... Yeah, ramen noodles from Sun Noodles. Yeah, and it's collaboration, man. It's helping other business thrive. Exactly. You know? Symbiotic relationship. Yes. Uh, what is one technology that you or one of the people you've worked with have recently developed that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines? All of that, I would have to say, as far as communication being the biggest thing, since everyone has different schedules and um, cars have so much time to talk to people through texting or phone calls uh, was Slack to help integrate and streamline um, all the communication for the small staff that I was able to run with. I think it's a great tool. Slack is a sponsor of this podcast already. Yeah, no, they're great. <laughs> I mean, that's for any business. Yeah. Yeah. Slack is great. I've, I've used in the past and I, I can 100, 100% support that sentiment. Uh, we're almost done. This is a big question right here. This is a doozy. So get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. And all the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Uh, it's a tough one. Imagine you had kids and you're leaving back, you know, leaving a, a message to them. Be kind to others. One. Be grateful. Two. And to have fun. Three. I've loved this conversation, Chef Gary. Uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. That's how I found you. Uh, special thanks to uh, Chef Mishka for calling you out. Who do you respect and admire? And if they were a guest on this show tomorrow, you'd absolutely be tuning in to learn something. I really respect and give a shout out to Chef Tony Messina. Mm, out of uh, B- Boston, correct? He's in L.A. now. L.A. now. Oh, sweet. Tony Messina, look out. We're coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And uh, how can we connect? Maybe we have an opportunity for you. Maybe we really enjoy this episode and we want to ask questions or we want to follow you on social media. What's the best way to connect? Yeah. Uh, through Instagram, uh, Chef Gary Kim. And I don't know, give me a phone call. I love talking to people on the phone. Are you going to drop your phone number on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> uh, people have done it in the past. You wouldn't be the first. No, you can hit me up on Instagram. Okay. Like said it there, yeah. <laughs> I don't blame you. I've loved this conversation, Chef. Uh, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Cheers. Appreciate it. Cheers. I appreciate you, man. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chef Gary Kim, for coming on and opening up and getting real, honest, vulnerable. It's not easy to do. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us and share your story and uh, motivation. And we're getting really real. I don't know if you've noticed the past couple episodes. They aren't completely bubbly and totally inspiring i mean they are inspiring don't get me wrong but at the same time there's just it's a dark time in the industry right now and i think it's kind of my responsibility to 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 cast a shade of truth on everything that's happening and while my mission is to inspire and empower the industry uh i think there's something to be said about the power of truth and the speed of truth and maybe i discourage you in some of these episodes and if that's the case good um i think i'm doing you a favor if I'm being completely honest, uh, but you know, it's just, I, I want this to be real. I don't want to fluff things up. I, I want to 
show a, a real depiction of what it takes to be successful in this industry. Uh, and again, Chef Gary Kim, thank you so much for joining us. I see you doing some special things. Hang in there. Uh, so we have some really cool things happening over at Restaurant Stoppable Network. Uh, we have parts two and three of the three-part workshop with Stephanie Robson that are going to be wrapping up in the month of January. Uh, we also have uh, a workshop on lease negotiation that you guys should really be a part of. And we have Peter Lazar coming back to do some peer mentoring on the 18th. Uh, you got to be in the network to be a part of all these conversations. So uh, if you're not in the network, what are you waiting for? Go to restaurantstoppablenetwork.com. Or if you really want to be a part of the uh, restaurant design and layout and uh, lease negotiation workshops, but you don't have the $30 to be in the network, email me, eric at restaurantstoppable.com. Com. I'll get you a 30-day trial so you can be a part of these conversations. And starting in two weeks, it's crazy to think it's only two weeks away, I'm going to be in New Orleans going hard, uh, doing some interviews, and uh, hopefully, I don't want to jinx it, we're going to have a videography in social media crew with me. Uh, this is part of the evolution of Restaurant Stoppable, uh, just going deeper and uh, trying to extract more from all these trips I go on. And uh, using my platform to create opportunity for others. So I'm really excited for the future of Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, If you guys are in New Orleans and you want to connect, hit me up. All right. Until next time, peace out.